0: As I mentioned earlier, for a number of reasons, we will not be going into the book of Jeremiah this evening, and instead, I'm going to turn your attention to Psalm 65. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 65. This is one of the things which, uh, at times in which I, I think I have a message, but I'm not entirely sure. I have a glimmering of a message in my mind, uh, and it's a message that in a lot of ways, uh, um, Uh, Resulted from our Sunday school, our Sunday school in which we uh, saw in in some ways the old covenant uh, just really failing to provide um, that which would be effective. And deficient in the will and purposes of God to um, uh, flesh out God's overall design. Israel failed. Israel broke the covenant. Israel did not do what they were called to do. And yet there were a godly remnant in the nation that were um, obedient and desirous to see God at work. And there was genuine religion, true religion, that took place in the nation. And that true religion, that true knowledge of God, that true experiential fellowship with God and taking seriously God's promises and God's commission and calling upon their lives and upon the life of the nation is expressed in their hymnody. It's expressed in their songs found in the book of the Psalms. And it's in this section of the Psalms, Psalms 65, 66, 67 in particular, that we see um, the purpose of what we would call uh, Jewish particularism, uh, the stuff that pertained to the nation and its own distinctives that made them different from the Gentile nations. And a lot of that had to do with the worship of God. A lot of that had to do with what we're going to look at in Psalm 65, where it begins, That praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Zion, of course, was the mountain, the Temple Mount, where the temple was built and where the people of God came to worship. It was that central sanctuary that they came to bring their offerings and sacrifices where they approached God And it was in that place of worship that they carried out religious commitments to God. Uh, Things that are mentioned in this section are things such as vows being spoken, uh, prayers being answered, um, place of atonement that was made uh, for the nation, um, blessings upon the people who gathered uh, to worship. It's all found in the first um, four verses but then in uh, verse six, um, or verse five uh, through verse eight, um, there's a broadening of the picture. Uh, That's away from the central sanctuary where the people went to carry out these acts of religious worship and commitment uh, to their covenant king and their covenant God, um, to the reality that the name of God and the presence of God was certainly not confined to that sanctuary, was not confined to that temple, that God's presence was to the earth's utmost bounds. And then it concludes with the fact that unto the utmost bounds, God provides. God makes provision for the good of his creation. And though it's mostly we're going to read about things that have to do with uh, giving food to the hungry, uh, visiting the earth and and watering it, enriching it, um, providing grain, the things necessary for life, our daily bread... Um, yet it's the picture of a God who still has an interest, not just in his own nation, not just in the people of the covenant, but ultimately a concern to the people of, peoples of the world. And to ultimately, he is their God as well. He is their maker. He is their sustainer. He is their provider. And he is the God who will ultimately bring blessings unto the ends of the of, of the earth, not just in terms of what we think of as the old creation, but a new creation as well. The God is a God who's going to renew the earth through his people. His people and their witness that they will bear his people and their prayers and their vows and their proclamation of the way of life and atonement. And so it begins at the sanctuary, but it fleshes out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, God's concerned about the uttermost parts of the earth. He promotes his, his, his presence to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he provides for the needs of all of his creatures unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So in a real sense, what's fleshed out in Psalm 65 is expressed more sus- very succinctly in Psalm 67, where it begins, May God be gracious to us, and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us. That's a prayer for the nation. That's a prayer for the people who gather in the sanctuary to worship God. But the whole end of the blessing of God upon his own people is that... In verse 2, your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. And the cries, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. So that's the movement of that psalm as well. Uh, from the people who meet and worship in the sanctuary that God has ordained his worship to be given. And yet, it's to the uttermost parts of the earth that uh, the vision is. There's a real sense in which the whole picture of the Old Testament is that God so loved the world that he called Israel to be his own special nation so that that nation would become a blessing to the nations of the earth. And that principle is true of us today as the people of God. We're called into the fellowship of God's Son not just to partake of blessings for our own sake but for the sake of the world in which we're called upon to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world in which we're called upon to cry to God for the work of missions and the work of the salvation of God being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And so let's begin with reading the 65th Psalm, giving you something of a taste of what's here. A praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh come. So again, it's the God who's in the sanctuary, hears the prayers of the Israelites, and yet all flesh understands their dependence upon God. All peoples understand their need to call upon his name. Uh, Whether they do that well or successfully or not, yet the reality is that all people need the Lord. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. That alone can satisfy the people of God. Even when the grains... Field is is abundant. The harvest is plentiful. When the new wine is increased, yet if approach to God is not a reality, the nearness of God, atonement and blessing of God upon His people, uh, God's people can never be happy with that set of things. That alone will satisfy uh, the people of God, the goodness of the house of God, the holiness of His temple. But then in verse 5, it again, it branches out. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth Are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water it, its furrows, abundantly. Settling its ridges and softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it seems to be something of the picture of the harvest being brought in. And sometimes you see even out here when the harvest is in, uh, they come with the reaper and they come with the trucks in the back where all the grain goes into the truck. Now God has something of uh, wagon tracks that overflow with abundance. Look at the corn just pile up. Look at the bounty that God gives The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Well, as I said, the psalm begins with God's people in God's house. God's special meeting place where the special presence of God is made known. Again, the people of Israel well understood that God is not... "...confined to temples made with hands, that his dwelling place is in the heavens, earth is his footstool, even the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you, Solomon prays, much less this temple that I built." And yet, God promised his special presence in that special place. And it was to that place the people were to come. It was to that place they were to gather on Mount Zion." And it's there on Mount Zion where the special worship of God is ordained. That praise was due to him. And the people of Israel would have been greatly guilty if they had failed to give God that which is due. God is owed the worship of his people and the worship of his people in the way of his appointment. And for us today it is the gathering of the saints. That's why we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is the manner of some. Praise is due to him in our Zion, in the gathering of the spiritual Zion, that we've come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That speaks of us as believers in Jesus. That we possess those blessings that Israel knew in the old covenant. Where the presence of God was with the worshipping people of God. And Jesus declares where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in their midst. We're told that the church is the habitation of God through the spirit. And so where God is present, praise is due. And we're remiss not to give him the praise that is due to him in the appointed worship of the living and the true God. And then as we come to worship, there's also involved in this worship, this whole matter of vows, of sacred vows that are taken in the presence of God. And again, the whole matter of vows, I know the New Testament speaks negatively of vows, simply because they were abused by the people of Israel. They were vowing, uh, vows that, uh, uh, some of them were more binding than others. And if you vowed by the temple, that was one thing. The gold of the temple was something different. And there was all kinds of hypocrisy. And sometimes when people multiply vows, it's because their word is not really to be believed. And they want to make a big impression uh, that, uh, uh, I mean it, I'm sincere, because I swear by my family and the grave of my mother and by this thing and that thing. We all have heard that sort of thing. And people lie through their teeth. But they think they're impressing you. I'm telling the truth or else I wouldn't have sworn by this or that. But they're not concerned about truth at all. They're just concerned about convincing you that they're not liars when they really are. But you see, when we come into the presence of God, oftentimes it is that we find ourselves, even in the quiet of our hearts, making commitments. As we hear his word, we hear that you know, God, certain practices or incumbent upon us as the people of God. God calls us to a higher standard of, of, of living. And maybe even this morning, as I've raised those questions about... Um would Jesus ever say of us how long have I been with you and do you not know me that maybe we've made vows to, to in our hearts, I it mean, doesn't it be formal but Lord I want to read more of the gospels, I want to uh, see Jesus more clearly, I want to uh, study the promises that uh, are bound up in him um, I want to be more Christ centered in my focus and maybe that was something of an inner resolution you made in your heart well there's something of a sacred vow that whether you knew it or not is really taken place. You're making promises to God. Maybe you'd actually swear an oath to do it, but yet it is something of a commitment that you seem to be making in your own heart. And the point of it is, in religious worship, when such intentions are expressed, when such resolutions are made, those are tantamount to vows that should be performed. Don't neglect it. Don't just say, I will do it and not. I'll pray more, and then you don't. You visit uh, uh, people in the hospital, and then you don't. I mean, we're all guilty of it. We say we'll do something, and then we don't. Um, Do the things that you declare in your words. Your words should be your bond. And in religious worship, don't mock God. But declaring things and vowing things... That you have no intention to perform. To you shall vows be performed. And then God is a God who not only hears our vows that are to be performed before Him, a God who is worthy of the praise that's due to Him, but He's also a God who hears prayer. O oh, you who hear prayer, to you all flesh come. There's always the question of whether or not God hears the prayers of the wicked. Because the wicked pray. The wicked pray at a time of desperation. The child is sick. A child is going into surgery like we had in our own family. And someone may not be a Christian yet he prays that God would so have mercy upon the child. Uh, does God hear their prayer? I have no question in my mind that God hears the prayer of all who call upon his name. Now, the question is whether anyone has any right to believe that God is bound in any way, shape, or form to hearing our prayer. That's his children that he's bound to hear their prayer. But God is merciful, and God often hears the prayers of unbelieving people, and in his mercy, he grants them their requests. And that shows his common grace. That shows the lovingness of his heart. That shows the fact that he's the God who causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, and his sun to shine upon the good and the evil. He hears the prayers of all flesh. All flesh come to him. And he is the God who hears prayer. And then in the sanctuary, not only is praise due to him, and not only is our vows to be performed, and not only does God hear prayer, but also atonement is made for sin. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Again, it's the sanctuary that's the place of atonement. It's the place where the offerings are brought. It's the place where the people that give those offerings lean into the animal itself. In a sense, it's transferring not just their guilt, but their very persons now are represented by that beast that's about to be slain and put on the altar of burnt offering. The death that that beast endures is what our sins deserve. As a beast is sacrificed unto God um, as a burnt offering, the worshiper is to consecrate himself and be a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is spiritual service. Because God is a God of pardons. God is a God who forgives. God is a God who makes atonement for our transgressions. And the fruit of atonement is that God should be feared. If you, Lord, mark iniquities, who, who, O Lord, could stand? But there's forgiveness with you. Not that you should play footloose and fancy free with sin issues, but that he should be feared. You should desire to honor and serve and reverence and regard the God who has pardoned you. And then in the sanctuary, there's not only praise that's due and vows performed and prayers that are heard and uh, iniquities that are forgiven, um, but there's also blessing that God pours out upon his chosen people. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. What a blessing to be in the presence of God, to be able to draw near even Old Testament worship I know there were veils and sacred space in which you were to distance from the presence of God and yet God was present in among his people and um, when atonement was made God says I will walk among you you know God's not confined to the holy of holies God is near to the worshipper he draws near and walks with his people and walks among his people And they are blessed, as they are chosen, and brought near, and dwell in God's courts. And those that have tasted of these blessings of the sanctuary, the blessings of the worship of God in the appointed place of God, in the place of God's appointment, all who have experience the reality of the praise that's due to him and vows that are performed before him and prayer that is heard by him and iniquities that are covered and transgressions that are atoned for and the blessing of those that are brought near to him to dwell in his courts can be satisfied with nothing less than those blessings that come from such fellowship. We shall be satisfied, he says, with the goodness of your house. The holiness of your temple. Nothing else will satisfy the people of God. What you'll you profit? Be profited if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. What do you give in exchange for your soul? If God's not present in your life, then you're, poor, you're uh, you have nothing. If God is present in your life, you have everything. Even in the midst of the poverty of this world, we have abundance in its fullness in the fellowship with the living God so that's what pertains to God's people centralized in a special place of worship knowing all of these realities and knowing all these realities not just to say oh look at us, look at what we have look at the blessings God's given to us, how special we are how wonderful we are those poor pagan peoples, how miserable they are Again, the blessings God gave to Israel were blessings that ultimately had their end as blessings that would come to the nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, God said to Abraham. It's through the seed of Abraham that blessings would come to the nations of the earth. And so the worshiper moves from the sanctuary and then it begins to, he begins to see God's glory God's name extending to the ends of the earth. God's presence at the utmost bounds of the earth. He looks out upon the rest of the world. And he sees the awesome deeds of God. Yes, awesome deeds in Israel, no question. But awesome deeds that are given not just to us. Because God is the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And God's borne witness to himself among the nations of the earth. Even though no Israelite has gone to preach in other nations except for Jonah who went to Nineveh. um, Yet God is not without witness. That's what Paul told the people at Lystra. God has not left himself without witness. He's given you rain and he's given you fruitful seasons and he's filled your hearts with joy. God has shown his Godhood in all the nations of the earth. Again, the invisible things of him are revealed through the things that are made as eternal power and deities so that people are without excuse. They know God, but they glorify him not as God and they are not thankful, yet the knowledge of God suffuses the whole of the earth. He's the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, the stills, the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. God is not absent from all the events of his world. I read world history, and he's not absent from that history. It's one of the things we saw in the book of Daniel, the way in which God, even amongst the nations of the world, raised up nations to have policies that were perfectly conformed to his will and design with reference to the nation of Israel. Now when he was going to judge the northern kingdom for their apostasy and rebellion and their covenant breaking, he raised up the Assyrians who had a policy of destroying, utter destruction. And those northern kingdoms, Tribes were utterly destroyed by their policies of, um, of uh, exiling people to one place and then moving in other people groups uh, to the place, other places that they conquered. So the people would be completely dislocated and they would have no longer a sense of national identity. That was God's purpose. And then when he sent Judah into, into captivity... It was the Babylonians, and the Babylonians didn't have the same policy. Babylonians changed their policy, and it was, uh, we want to use the gifted people. We want to use the Daniels of the world and the Ezekiels of the world to build up a great great Babylon. Babylon the Great will be built up through all the gifts of the peoples that we conquer. And so the people were brought into exile to serve in Babylon, and um, not to be destroyed. Not to be dislocated, not to be merged with other people groups. They remained uh, separate. And then when God raised up the Persians, their policy was, we don't want to take people out of their nations anyway. We want the goodwill of the conquered people. And the way, the ways we get the goodwill of the conquered people is we send them back to their native lands. And so that's when, under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people (laughs) came back um, to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. Uh, So God's at work among all the nations of the world to further his purposes. And we can argue out the way God worked through the Roman Empire and uh, 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 to do the things that were needed for the gospel when the gospel went forth into the world. Paul had roads to... Uh, Travolon that were built by the Romans, they had a, a common language uh, uh, of Greek to uh, uh, preach the message of Christ. There were all these uh, the Roman peace, and even though it was a horrific peace that was bought at the expense of a tremendous shedding of blood, and it was also bought by putting peoples into into slavery. Um, I mean, the Romans were just not a nice people at all. But yet, for the purposes of the gospel, they brought a certain kind of order and peace that was beneficial for the spread of the gospel. So we have all these ways in which we see God at work in all the nations of the earth, accomplishing His will, accomplishing His purpose, because God is the God of the nations. And He bears witness to His deity. He bears witness to His power. He bears witness to His grace amongst all the nations of the earth. He makes the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Every morning when you arise, again, people know that they're blessed to live in God's earth, to have the blessings of a new day, to have an ability to live, um, even in their ignorance, even in their blindness, uh, yet they know something of God's goodness. And then that just holds forth the reality that God is a God who ultimately wants those nations to be his people, to flock into his kingdom, to be part of his worshiping people. And so God is a God who ultimately has a design to send forth the gospel to the nations, the good news of reconciliation in the nations of the earth. Because ultimately God's design is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That the nations of the world will become His his people, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And something of that Ambition that God has for the nations. I think it's seen in the fact how God provides. How God makes provision, even of daily bread. That simply testifies to the fact that God is a God who makes provision that ultimately will lead them to seek Him. Again, um, Paul says, He's not left you without witness that you might seek Him, though He's not far from every one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. So God's whole purpose is that people will seek Him. They'll come to know Him. He says you visit the earth and you water it. Not just on Israel, Israeli territory, not just in, in Canaan and in, in, in Zion, but throughout the world. God is a God whose rain falls upon the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. He speaks of the river of God that's full of water. Again, remember the rivers that went through Eden for the purposes of watering the the earth. And that's typical of the fact that God is a God who visits not just in terms of the waters of this of this earth to, 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 to quench physical thirst but he's the God um, who offers living water he's the God who has rivers of life ultimately that he grants to his people Jesus says if you knew the gift of God and he did, who it is you're speaking to you'd have asked and he would have given you uh, living water he, prov- he provides their grain gives them, gives them this day their daily bread so that you have prepared it. For so you have prepared it. And you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers. And again, I don't think that it's just putting forth the fact that um, you know there's rain and fruitful seasons that are you know, just seasonal and annual and temporary. But it's an ultimate picture of the fact that God is a God who wills to renew the earth. He designs to bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And all the effects of sin that bring such chaos and trouble and bring such misery into the world with famines, with droughts, with hurricanes, with tsunamis, with all of the rest that come as a consequence of the convulsions that are in the earth because of human sin, because the earth is under a curse. That that curse is to be lifted. And ultimately through the redemption of Christ all the earth will come to know the power of God's redemption. The whole earth travails in, in, in pain, Paul says, waiting for the adoption, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. There will be that time when He will make all things new. God is the great provider throughout all of the earth. And his provision is not just a temporal provision. It's not just um, a provision of daily bread. It's a provision that points to greater provisions, because people have greater needs. That this God is a God who fills the heart with joy and gladness. This is the God that fills the hearts of his children with, with spiritual good and spiritual benefits and spiritual blessings, and not just the blessings that pertain to this earth, and not just for time, but for eternity. In terms of refashioning the earth for his glory and so a lot of these psalms are sometimes called creation psalms because they celebrate the, the beauty the wonders of creation but you know when we read a creation psalm just us think in terms of the here and the now think of the ultimate end that God has for creation the creation will come out of its bondage come into the liberty of the children of God and the creation will be renewed And he will make all things new in that day when he will bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The point of it is that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel that were gathered in worship at the central sanctuary on Mount Zion, they saw, they recognized, they tasted, they experienced, they were overwhelmed and overjoyed at at, at the blessings they possessed. But it wasn't just blessings for them. It was blessings that ultimately had a design that the blessings of God would go to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul wrote in the book of Romans that his mission was what? The obedience of the nations. That the nations would come to know God. That the nations would come to obey God. That's God's design and that's God's will and that's God's purpose in and through his church. Not that we should just be on the one hand uh, we shouldn't be ignoring the blessings we have that are distinctive to the redeemed. In fact, we should be satisfied with nothing less than these blessings, but not just for ourselves. Not just for ourselves. Again, that's why we're taught to pray Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done unto the uttermost parts of the earth, as is done in heaven. The Old Testament was ambitious to see God's glory and praise unto the ends of the earth. How much more you and I who live in the days of the new covenant. When God says he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. When God has a clear commandment to go with this message to the ends of the earth. To make disciples of the nations. That all the nations would hear and know the good news. And come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, may God be gracious unto us. And bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. But not because we're the end of the story. It's that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. May God be pleased to teach us the, the joy of the blessings we have, but yet to be ambitious to see those blessings extend to the uttermost bounds of earth. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word and we're thankful for these psalms that celebrate your goodness to your people and yet also express that we should be ambitious to see your name known through all the creation that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people that would truly appreciate the distinctive blessings of Christian worship and also recognize that others need to be brought in. Others need to hear the good news and others need to leave their idols to come and to worship and to know the God we we know and we serve. So help us to have that dual perspective of, of seeing inwardly as we gather the overwhelming blessings which are ours and to draw upon those blessings for health spiritual health and strength and perspective but then give us a vision for the nations give us an understanding of the universality of your will and purposes that all the nations would become the people that bless the living God So we ask you to hear our prayers. We're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the joys we've known together, the refreshment that has come to us in our singing, in our prayers, in our study of your word. And be pleased, Lord, to go with us as we leave uh, our fellowship with you and with one another and you take the the joy of what we've known uh, into the week that is before us and that in all things we would acknowledge you. In all things we would look to you. In all things we would know. The reality of a God who is not far away, but a God who is near. So hear our prayers. Bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.